Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 76. Don't buy more than you can afford. Start small and build up. I learned that the hard way multiple times. And at some point, I just had to sell, get rid of a whole bunch of things and pretty well start over because I hadn't built my operation correctly. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's episode, we have Tanner McBride of STK Cattle and Hay. They sell all-natural grass-finished beef, as well as run a custom hay and hay sales business in northwest Oklahoma. They also have a YouTube channel you'll want to subscribe to. But before we talk to Tanner, 10 seconds about my farm. I moved the two mobs together for a couple reasons. I want the herds together just so it's easier for me to get around and and move them. And secondly, I wanted to combine the mobs so I had more bull power in case I had a bull that wasn't shooting as good as he needed to. If I had a bull not doing as good as he needed to. I have them on a property I have a lease on, kind of a lease. I'm grazing it. I'm excited. It's got lots of growth, and I think cattle do really good there. One thing as I was getting ready for this podcast I was like, we have not been doing our review of the week. So I went to various podcasting platforms to hear about a review, and we do not have any current reviews. We've had a lot of people get on there and leave how many stars. But if you would get on there and leave us a review, we would greatly appreciate it because it helps get the word out about our podcast. And when someone's out there looking and thinking, oh, do I want to listen to this? They read the reviews, and your review may be the one that causes them to subscribe, and we greatly appreciate that. An older review that I don't think we've shared on the podcast is from Cheaters10. I absolutely love this podcast and the farmers that have been interviewed on it. Well worth the follow. So much knowledge is shared on here. Thank you. Appreciate it. So if you haven't left a review, please do. Also, please share this episode with someone you think will enjoy it. Tanner, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. 
Thank you. Good to be here. Tanner, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? We did custom hay growing up and we had, we had quite a few cows. I got sat in a tractor's. I think as soon as, as soon as I could hold down the buzzer for the seat, I was sitting in something and I, I wouldn't swear that they didn't put a sack of feed under me a couple of times. Anyways, I, I grew up in, in agriculture and going through high school. I never knew what I wanted to do afterwards. I always knew I wanted to do some kind of farming, but wasn't sure how that would ever fit in. After I graduated high school, I, I went to college. I got a associate associates in uh, psychology. Like the idea of helping teenagers, kids. Now that I have some, uh, you know, I think they, that's about all I can help. After that, I went to uh, OSU and uh, was still a psychology major. It took about two days of classes to realize those weren't my kind of people. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I transferred into the College of Plant and Soil Science and uh, Animal Science as a double major. Graduated from Stillwater with the Oklahoma State University for those yeah, go poke. Exactly. I graduated from there in 2011. In that time in 2011, we were in Oklahoma. We were in a slight drought, I think is what you'd call it. I think it was a hundred and hundred plus days of a hundred degree temperatures. And I was a, a crop consultant straight out of college and uh, did, did seed sales and walking corn circles in the middle of the hundred degree temperatures for that long. I decided there's probably something better to do. I bought a tractor and a baler. I'd already bought a quarter of land and, uh, it was in alfalfa. And that's what I grew, we, I grew up with a bunch of alfalfa. Just second, Tanner, when you say a quarter of a quarter of land, tell our listeners what you mean. I bought 160 acres, which is a quarter. I got an interesting story about that, Tanner. I went to OSU, get down, down there. I'm from Northeast Oklahoma. So land areas here are a little bit smaller than your area. And I met. One of my friends from was, was from Western Oklahoma. All the time, he didn't talk about acres or anything. He talked about quarters. I figured it out. Well, I probably asked him, but I figured it out. But no one up in my area or no one that I know of refers to it as quarters. But I've heard that and known it for years. I just thought it was interesting. That's the way you referred to it. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, in our area, we're quarters, half sections, sections. I'm in Northwest Oklahoma, so... I wouldn't say we're more open. It's pretty rough and hilly in places out here, but a lot of the land was has stayed in pretty big tracks tracks of land. I'd say. Oh yeah, we've got you know there's I've got a neighbor that's got an eighty, and I rent an eighty here and there, but that's about as small as most most acreages go. Oh yeah. So I do understand what you're saying though. That's in your area. That's like well, I've got twenty acres and all kinds of weird weird numbers. Oh yeah, and the shapes are odd. You know, a narrow 40. I got a neighbor, they've got a 60. It's going to be a 30 because a brother and sister have it. And one wants to sell and the other doesn't. So you're going to have a narrow 30 there. Right. It, it's just interesting. Not too many quarters in my... Now, just where I am, I'm almost on the dividing line. I'm just Craig County, which borders Kansas, and Rogers County, which runs south to Tulsa almost. County line is a mile from me. And you go from that county line north, you can start talking about quarters. You can start talking about sections. It gets into big pieces. There's ranches north of me. Okay. South of me, and I say that relative, there's hit and misses. I mean, there's a lot of small stuff around here still yet, but you go five miles north of me and it's all big stuff. You go south of me and then you're really into 
two and a half acres, five acres, 10 acres, whatever it may be. There's still a few large pieces. There's a guy two miles south of me that still owns a section, which I think is, is so cool. He's got a section. I'd like to put it all together in one place. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. I, I might come up with a section, but it's going to be 10 miles from one end to the other. From where my most of my stuff is, I uh, if you go a mile north, you lose the section lines. And it's oh yes, big. It's bigger tracts of land, couple thousand acres at a time. If you go about a mile north of me, there's a lot of canyons there, and they've never divided it up. And that's my family's ranch that my dad runs. About eighteen hundred acres of just continuous ranch. Oh yes, nice. So it's I can't remember the exact. It's almost two miles wide and three miles long, if I remember right. Oh yeah, but it was continuous. Is just amazing. Right. Well, and that ranch, I, I, I really like history on land, just kind of learning where it came from. And uh, that ranch used to be, I think it was 20 miles long and 20 miles wide. Oh, wow. And they sold it out piece by piece over the years. But, you know, we have oil wells on the property and it has the name of the previous owners. And it's it's just got the ranch name on some of the locations. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of cool. It is interesting. Just as a point of interest, my great-grandparents came from the Panhandle of Texas. I've been out there, and I'm not real sure why they were out there, because, you know, they're talking acres to run a cow. I like where I am much better, but we still have, we still go to family, fam, oh boy, we still go to family reunions out there, still got a lot of family out there. Right. I'd say, I think it was my great-great-grandparents homesteaded in this area i've still got i've got an uncle that lives on the old homestead would that have been a land run time yes yeah that was 1893 oh wow very nice yeah they've kept that in the family there's been other a lot of my family was brought here to or came through the land runs some of the properties have been sold just due to family selling off land when someone passes away it just didn't stay yeah it happens so the ranch where my dad that my dad operates um that was purchased in the 90s that's not a not part of wasn't set you know obviously we didn't settle that because it was a bigger ranch than the previously well now tanner you mentioned you were crop consultant and you decided you needed to do something different you had a quarter of land you went out and bought a tractor yes and i partnered with my dad he was still doing custom hay at the time partnered with him he had all the other hay equipment plus his own tractor and baler we made it by the end of the first season of Balen Hay together. He said, I don't think there's room on our family operation for two of us. So oh, yeah. at that point, I had to find, make the decision that I had stopped crop consulting, stopped my seed sales business and had to make a decision on what I was going to do. So I ended up buying all my own hay equipment, another swath. I bought a swather and a rake and decided that was what I was going to do as well, but we never, since then, there hasn't been much of a, what you call family operation. We, oh yeah, we both do the same thing, but we do it in the same area. It's not together. So I don't know. I don't know how that's going to look in the future. I always liked the idea of being, having a family farm, but at some point you just got to do your own thing and make it work. And that family farm, you know, generations, that's, it's a tough thing just to, to work the multiple generations and like your dad said you got to be able to make a living there, and then you got to do it for two families. I know with my dad and I, I work with my dad, 
And then I have my own stuff because, mm-hmm. well, his farm's not big enough. So while I, I do a lot of the stuff here, he's still, he's still in charge here and tells me what I should be doing. And then I go out and do what I think needs done. But then I try and cover those things too. But it, it's tough to for multiple generations to do it. I've got a daughter that she's told me she she wouldn't mind coming home, but and working on the farm. But right now we can't afford that. And I'm hope hopefully we'll get there in the future. Well, that that's my goal is to have something to pass down generationally. And like I said, I don't know how my family stuff is going to work because the ranch my dad operates is still owned by my grandpa. Oh yeah. So I've heard. I don't know which podcaster said it first, but ranches move on one funeral at a time. So it, it's true. My grandpa's 83 years old and he still makes a good share of the decisions. So, well, just, so I'm, I'm here and I'm, I'm running cattle on lease land and I actually live on my dad's place. So dad's running cows here. We go up, this is kind of funny. We go up the road two miles and my parents live on my grandparents' place. And it's actually, it's their little five acres now. But grandma and grandpa still running cattle up there. Well, that's my dad owns 15 acres in the middle of my grandpa's ranch. I own five acres in half section, 320 acres. That is my parents. And I rent that from them. So that's, it, it, it's the kind of a messy situation, but I guess it is what it is. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not very knowledgeable about ranch su- succession. I think at times I need to know more. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting deal, especially on these family places where you got multiple generations going and then, you know, my grandparents place, the way that's going to spread out. But yeah, that could take up a whole time talking about it. We need someone more knowledgeable than me on here. Right. I, I like listening to podcasts about it and trying to get ideas. I've tried talk, talking to family about it and they said, no, that's not how it works. Everyone gets you know, three kids, it goes in the thirds, four kids, it goes in the quarter. You know, you divide it into fourths and I'm like, whoa. Right. And that's really the way my grandparents and parents feel. They, they have divided it. So my grandparents farm and I'm far enough east, we call it a farm. Some other people might call it a ranch. It's big enough. It's not huge though. It's going to be divided among their four kids. And then I've got two siblings and my parents say, it's going to be divided among the three of you. And that's that's completely within that. You know, I tell my parents whatever they want to do. If I get none of it, I'm good. I'm happy. I just want them to enjoy whatever they're doing and what they want to do. Right. When, when you look at it from a different direction of keeping the ranch viable for future gen- generations, that becomes a different conversation. You chop land down one generation, chop it down another generation, pretty quickly, you don't have a sustainable operation. You know, in my area, I think they claim we need somewhere between 10 and 20 acres, depending on the land land that we're using, but we need 10 to 20 acres per cow. Oh, yeah. It gets really hard to make a living. If, I mean, on 320 acres, if I went by the FSA, whatever suggestion, that's not a whole lot of cows. I mean, that's 16 cows. I mean, I don't think that that's going to pay, pay anyone's bills long-term. Yeah. It's an interesting dilemma that I don't have the answer for. I'm trying to lease land so I can be running more cattle 
And at some point, I hope I have enough cattle I can retire from my day job. Right now, I've got a nice herd, but it's not near big enough to to fund what I want to buy, you know? (laughs) Right. And well, I guess that that probably leads into all the next step of my journey somewhat because I started leasing land. I had that quarter, the 160 acres that I owned. You know, I got out of college and I was, I was dead certain it's, it's an irrigated 160 acres, 120 acres under irrigation. I was certain I was going to have alfalfa, mate, still hated dairies, fertilized, run water, spray every cutting. There were no cattle on that property. So I rented another 160 acres and it was what you'd call a fixer upper. There were no fences. Land was they wanted it put to grass. It was 60 acres of the skeet trees and native grass and a hundred acres that was in Milo. That farm, from what they told me, had not been fertilized in 50 years. Oh, yeah. And, and they said, well, we want part of the rent is you're going to plant this to grass, build fences and kill the mesquite trees. I did all that along the way. I'm like, you know, I started thinking about stuff I'd done in college as far as, or read about that of rotational grazing. And I didn't know how to do it, but I knew it was a thing. I took the hundred acres and I divided it into 30 acre tracks, started rotating. Then I had the 60 acres as kind of where I'd wintered the cattle on. I'd say in the end, I ended up with a really nice blue stem field. I was still cutting that for hay and selling some hay off of that. That was before I, it fully set that with me that bailing hay takes a lot out of your land. And oh yeah, I, I hadn't started a regenerative journey at that point. I'd fertilize, I'd spray and uh, my cattle were getting, uh, like I said, I had a field of alfalfa. So my cattle got alfalfa, hay, they got cattle cubes, they got protein tubs. Uh, they were the most overfed herd of cows you ever saw, but that's what they tell you to do. Finally, one year I had, I, I started reading on my, kind of doing a, oh, I, I don't know what you call it, a balance sheet or just checking where my money was going and coming from on that property. And I was, I was upside down in every calf, hundreds of dollars. Well, I could have been selling that hay and could have, you know, so I started changing everything and I still wasn't a hundred percent on the ridge of journey, but I had decided my cows were too big and they were, they were around 1400 pounds. But oh yeah, good sized cows. So I started buying buying Aberdeen Angus bulls. So that I was using those to reduce my herd size. And I guess I should back up. I bought my original cows from my grandpa, who has the herd with my dad, in 2011. Whenever we were in the drought, he was selling, is reducing his herd. So I bought, I think it was around 16 red heifers. Prices were low because we were in a drought. And got me in in the cattle I at least was familiar with. Yes. And like I said, I started using Aberdeen bulls to reduce the herd size. And then somewhere around 2018, the cattle market was up. Well, I made the brilliant idea to buy bred heifers and leverage my other half of my herd against it. And oh, that was a wreck in 2015. I looked real dumb. You know, hindsight will make you look that way. But when you're when you're standing there trying to make that decision, it's not as clear cut as hindsight makes it. No, but you know, looking at taking hindsight and they care in the cattle cycle right now, we're, we're coming back into high cattle prices. I'm not going to buy any. 
Yeah, it's going to have to be the right deal to buy any. I paid three thousand dollars a head for some, and thirty four hundred for some others, uh, and they weren't even registered. I don't know what I was thinking back then, but I've seen prices people getting that now, so it'll be interesting. I bought a just a handful, six head, no, seven head of Corriente heifers. I got them pretty cheap. Of course, I'm watching. I watch Craigslist and stuff, and it's amazing the prices on Craigslist. For those people that's not familiar with Craigslist, it's just a marketplace on the web. And I, I watch that, and it's always very interesting to watch those prices. I got these Corriente heifers. I thought for a decent price, brought them in. Everything since then has been quite a bit higher than what I paid. So I'm, I may have just lucked out on my timing there. Yeah, no, it's, and I, I, at that, you know, up until 2020, I was running nothing but a Hereford and Angus mixed herd using a Aberdeen bull on them. But my Aberdeen bulls kept falling apart, kept getting hurt. I'd only get one or two seasons out of them. The country was, I don't know if the country was too rough or what, but you know, the genetics a lot of them were used too much as show cattle then. Oh yeah. Rather than, you know, hardy, hardy cattle. They've, they've been pampered a little too much. That's what I came to learn. And that led me on to, uh, Pharaoh cattle company. Oh yes. So I, I started buying bulls from them, but in 20, in 2020, it was before, I think it was before all the COVID stuff. I, I partnered with a neighbor of mine cause I had. At that time, I had lost my lease on the grass that I was running my cows on. I sprigged my alfalfa field to Bermuda. So I had a Bermuda, I took my cows down to that. And at the same time was able to rent the 320 acres that I, so it all kind of rotated right then, I guess you'd say. Oh yeah. And I needed more cows. I went from having 160 acres of grass to 300 in a circle of Bermuda. So my neighbor had Corey and he cows and I'm good friends with them. We've, I, whenever it comes time to, uh, gather and work calves, I go help him. He comes helps me all the time. So I said, Hey, just bring me about 40 of them. And so I started custom grazing his cows and that was an, I, I had heard about it. I had just started watching Greg Judy in 2020. Oh yeah. And which when COVID hit. I had nothing better to do than watch Greg Judy. Yeah. So, you know, I, I started, you know, doing a little work on this custom grazing stuff. We made it work until this drought hit, but in 2020, our youngest son passed away at two years old in an accident. Oh no. Sorry to hear and that. And thank you. But at that point, things started changing. Our family priorities changed. I completely changed our cattle operation to. I was fully invested with grass fed at that, after that, I haven't fertilized since 2018, I think, because oh yeah, I decided that that wasn't paying me any money. And so I was trying to figure it out and researching options back then. But I'd say at that point, my whole operation took a kind of made, took a completely different track than it had been on. But now we grass finished in, in the drought, I, we sold out the partnership on the custom grazed cattle and i through that deal he paid me in half any heifers out of oh. pharaoh red angus bulls uh, i i provided the bulls for the uh for the custom grazing because he we just mixed them in with my herford angus herd I, we ran my bulls he, he had been running charlotte bulls 
and which they make a great calf mixed with Coriones. So you can you can tell her part. They're crossbred, but they grow out. Those those calves get bigger than the cow. So I mean, it's it, it's a if for a uh, terminal cross, I really like it. But I was keeping heifers out of the red Angus bulls I had, and that's kind of the foundation of our herd. Is I've crossed down to mostly red Angus, red Angus cross cows that are starting with phylogenetics now. Hell yeah. Then we grass finished the steers on our Bermuda field. That really gives you a nice way to give them a higher plane of nutrition. It does, but along in there somewhere, my irrigation system quit and the prices of a new irrigation system due to COVID went from, I could buy a new, new system for $50,000 five years ago. Now they're around 120,000. So when you I make, you know, while you're making land payments, that's a hard pill to swallow. I don't think I could pencil that out on corn. I don't think I could pencil it out on anything. I haven't fixed the irrigation system and my cattle are, I can rotate them into every time I move them, they're in belly deep Bermuda grass with no fertilizer and no irrigation. That's all oh, that that's been in the drought. I had to destock some, but we've got close to 40 steers out there right now. It's, it's holding them, holding them pretty good. Oh, well, good, good. Now, have you had pretty good rain this year? Decent rain? This year we have. Yeah. I think all the rain we lost in 21 and 22 came in May or came in June and July this year. And that's the way it works. I was watching Sun Up the other day and they were talking about due to the rain, the corn in western Oklahoma didn't develop the roots like it normally does. So they're concerned about it toppling over. We get later in the year, it gets taller, we get wind and stuff. And then also we've got kind of a little bit of a dry period and those roots just aren't going down as far to get water. Right. Uh, then that's as a crop consultant, I've, I, I've had to deal with that and I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You've got to stress the plant a little bit to, to make it push those roots down into the profile and when you're in a conventional tillage system, you don't have a whole lot of soil profile to use. So, yeah, I think it's a kind of a compounding issue. Now, you started with your Pharaoh cattle four, five, six years ago? No, I, I bought my first one in 20, just 2021, actually. Oh, okay. But do you have heifers kevin out of that that are out sired by that bull? So, my first first year, right now, I've got heifers out of the first bull getting bred right now. The first year I turned my, cause I didn't know what to make of the whole deal. So I turned my Red Angus Pharaoh bull in with my Aberdeen bull that I was using with my heifers. And wouldn't you know, the Pharaoh bull only threw bull calves. The first year I, every calf I had was out of my Aberdeen bull or every heifer I had was out of the Aberdeen bull. And my, I have five steers out of my Pharaoh bull. I sold some steer or some heifers that year. That guy said that he got a bunch of red heifers. My, and in 2020, when, when I started renting this 320 acres from my parents, the agreement was I bought my, bought my dad's calves from him. He has around a hundred head and he selects his top 15 heifers every year to keep. So I was breeding, I guess you'd call them his cold heifers. And that was to, uh, help justify paying paying for an, an extra bull that because you know at that point i was 
wasn't a hundred percent bought into the Pharaoh cattle, but I wasn't, I, I, I definitely was kind of leaning that way enough to buy a bull at least. Right. right. And, and to be honest, I've, I've looked at them. We have not bought one, but it has crossed my mind more so for my dad's herd rather than my herd. Of course, I say that we share bulls. So his breeding season's different than mine, which works out really good. But I'm using South Pole bulls right now. But those Pharaoh cattle, they intrigue me. I don't know if I'll do it, but they intrigue me. Well, last weekend was the Texas bull bullworking day for Pharaoh Cattle Company. And I went down there and I, I went, I was down there for the uh, bullworking. I've been down there the last two fall season bullworkings. Oh, yeah. And they have some really nice South Poles in there too. I, I've started running the, uh, I've got two Red Angus bulls right now and a Rob Pierce, which he's, I think he's up by Tahlequah, uh, Northeast Oklahoma. I'll just leave it at that. I don't, I don't remember the exact town, but he is running what he calls a quarter, quarter, half. It is a quarter Mashona, quarter Coriani, and half Red Angus. I bought one of those bulls and this is my first season to use him, but so we're expecting some, a little more heat tolerant cattle coming out of our herd. And I think because through the partnership with my neighbor, I have a lot of half for and he's in now. I do kind of like you said, I, whenever I see a, uh, or whenever I see a load of Corey and he's sitting on Facebook or someone selling five or eight or something, I, I, I really start getting an itch to go hook on the trailer and go pick some up. I've done that a few times. I've see right now I have eight full Corianis that I had bought and they're, I bought them last fall and they're in with my, uh, they're in with the bull now. They'll be getting bred to, to start calving in next May, hopefully. I've got, this is the first season I've got any Corianis with South Pole calves on them. I'm liking those calves right now. So yeah, I have a friend that really tried to convince me to put a South Pole bull over my Corianis. He's a little further south than me in Oklahoma, but he's running quite a few Corianis cows and breeding him up through South Poles. I don't know why, but the four breed composite kind of scares me, scared me at that time. And now I'm running a Mashona Corianis Red Angus bull. So I guess it really didn't matter. You bring up a valid point there. You, you start running into some crossbreds or even, you know, the composite, whether or not South Poles composite a breed. Of course, you get all those genes in there. You don't know exactly what's coming out. And that's always the scary part. Now, with the South Pole, I feel fairly confident with them. The ones I've looked at, I've been very impressed with. My biggest concern is size on them um, because I we've traditionally had limousine cross. And these are much smaller cattle. Of course, we're trying to be more efficient, make more money while we're at it. And, you know, as, as soon as I got this 320 acres, I think my dad thought I was going to keep running it the same way he did. It's divided into four 80-acre pastures. And 180 was set aside to run 20 to 30 cows year round. And that's what he did. He fed them. They, they had to get fed a lot to do that. But in that 80 acres is still, it's a weed patch. It's slowly coming around, but it's, it's pretty tough. The other three 80 acre pastures, he had disked once or twice every summer. And we had planted them to rye and we are very sandy here. So if we don't do any, if we disc a field and don't do anything with it, it'll turn into sand dunes. It, it's fun. I mean, I, I, I thought about renting the land out for recreation, 
I think you'd make more money, but if you can cover liability insurance, <laughs> right? I don't know how to do that one. But as soon as I started renting it, I of course brought these Longhorns and Corianti crosses and painted up cattle. And my dad called me and asked, "What are you doing?" I was like, "Oh, I'm making money." And he said, "You'll never make money with those cows." And he said, "I, I don't think you need those on the property." I said, "Well, I'm renting it, so well, I guess I'll just figure it out." But we had, at that time, we were running on this 320 acres, just the cows out here. We had between 100 and 120 cows on the property, which when I decided to rent this property, my dad told me, yes, you can rent it. He pulled his cows off. The crabgrass out here was thigh high. And I thought, oh yeah, bring these cows out. We have, we have ample grass. It's going to be great. And he told me, he said, he said, well, he said, yeah, you could take it over first of November. And this would have been around the first of September. I came home from baling hay and I was bailing at night. I wasn't looking in the pastures. I, I live in the pasture, in one of the pastures. I hadn't paid any attention. He had disked all three 80 acre pastures that were full of crabgrass and the cattle were going to be there that weekend. They, they were a week away whenever he decided he was going to disc it. Because I didn't own any tillage equipment because I, I had pretty well invested in a no-till. He, he thought he was doing me a favor by disking under that ratty, he was disking under that ratty crabgrass for me so I could plant my rye. I was like, oh, come on. I was thinking I was going to get a good two or three months of grazing out of that crabgrass. I, I had, at first we put those cattle down on the Bermuda. At that time I didn't have calves on it or anything, so. I let them graze off the Bermuda and then we moved them up here. And I, I do no till a rye mixed in, into, in on the Bermuda and on the crabgrass. So that gives winter grazing if it rains and doesn't die from, say, no rain for a year. I, I've seen that happen recently. But so, and that, that's, uh, that works really well in this area. We don't have cool season grasses. So have to plant, plant annuals to do that. We can pretty reliably get crabgrass, and I don't know if all your listeners will know what this is, but we have what we call sandburst or stickers. It's we have about an equal part crabgrass to equal sandburst. It's not the best in the world. It's definitely definitely not any fun to pick those things out of your paint legs. Corey, any cows eat them? I guess if you got horned cattle, they eat spiky things. I don't. know. I guess so. Whatever is working for you, you know, you gotta go with. Right. Anyway, so that's, for the most part, that's the cattle operation. Are you, are you still doing custom haying? I do some. I ended up in 2017 or 18, I started renting, renting land from a commercial pig farm. They do not allow cattle on the property. I bale hay on that, and there's roughly 800 acres of hay ground on that. I'd call it marginally irrigated. It has irrigation on it, and they apply pig manure through the irrigation system. And uh, some fields get it once a year, manure applied once a year. Some, it might be every other year or every three to five years. So it depends on which pig barn, I guess, is on that property. But I do do some custom hay. A lot of it I do for neighbors on shares. Oh, yeah. And... I, I sell most of the hay I bale on my rent ground. 
and I keep my neighbor's shares usually for feeding my own cattle. I don't know. I don't know if that's the right thing or not, but I almost feel like I've got less invested in it versus planting the seed. And I, I do use some commercial fertilizer on that, on my hay ground. I try to wean myself off of it, but whenever you're extracting nutrients in a hay operation, it's hard to get around unless I get pig manure, which that's been a, been a great help to keeping that going at times. Yeah. And you don't have grazing animals to run across it and, and help it out. I assume that pig manure is a lot like chicken manure. It'll make rocks grow. It could either make them grow or it'll burn them. Just the high concentration mm. in the in the manure, sometimes it gets highly concentrated and I think it gets high in salt. Sometimes it will kill a crop. I've ran into that. But so far they've worked with me to uh, plan the applications a little better. So oh, well, very good. It's been a learning process. I find most things are. And Tanner, it's been a great conversation thus far, but it's time we move on to our overgrazing section. And for that, we're going to swing back to cattle and talk a little bit more about cattle. All righty. I've got neighbors. We've got, you look in their cow herds or even in my, my own family's cow herds. There's cows that I just call freeloaders. They have a calf every other year, but you know, that calf they bring in, they claim it, they wean the biggest calf every other year. Or you got your pet cow or whatever, whatever you want to call them. And I had that for plenty of time. And I still, I still have cows that are named and I tell them goodbye when they get off the trailer at the sale barn too. But, and that, that's been, it was a big change, but we moved from calving in January and February to May 1st calving. Uh, my first calf came April 26th this year and I I keep three bulls and I run one bull for 21 days. I pull him out, and that, that's usually my youngest bull, my most recent, recently purchased bull. I pull him out. I put my next bull, next oldest bull in for 21 days, and then continue that within 21 days of my oldest bull at the very end. And most years, I will only have one or two cows have after the first 45 or so days of calving season oh yeah that allows and, and the ones that don't breed turn my bull back out i preg check everything the first week of march at that time all my neighbors in this area have moved to calving in december so and they're still spring calving they claim if i turn my bulls out first of march to cover any opens they meet their calving window found that has been a good way to market my coal cows and that like i said my neighbors say you know, I, I, I preg check my cows. There's a second week of August and I've got, oh, I think two thirds of the ones that were open, they ended up breeding up to have December 1st. And when I took the sale barn, luckily cattle prices are up. I couldn't argue with it. So I just took them in. But, you know, whenever you try selling a whole cow that doesn't calve until June, you do get, you will take a hit on that price where I found for myself and in my area, December, January calving idea. I don't like it, but it's a, uh, it's marketing. I can't tell my neighbors what to do. So if they want to pay for it, I'll let them. Yeah. If it's working for them and that's a great way to look at what your area looks like, what's going on there nearby and how you can take a, a product of lower value 
and increase the value to meet the need right there close to you. Yeah, some years an open cow brings just as much at the sale barn as a bred cow. If I te- peg check first of March, that's also whenever I wean my calves. So I'm weaning my calves at the full 10 months, about 10 months of age. So if I find opens at that time, I've weaned their calves. I have, I guess, their last valuable thing to me. So, you know, you look at the cattle market and if it's not going to pay to, uh, to turn a bull out with them or graze them for another six to eight months to, uh, get them into a calving window that matches, you know, some of my neighbors and what's more common in my area, I have taken some just to the sale barn. All, all these decisions based upon price are really fluid with what the market's doing. And, and another, another thing is if you're, you're going to have enough grass to graze them that much longer. And I, I don't, I don't want to lead people into thinking that doing the same thing every year always works. There's always a new, something new So There is, you know, you got to have a plan, but then you've got to be aware of what's happening and, and be willing to change plan. You got to be flexible about it. I still think that's a great way to look at a, a potentially lower value animal and figuring out how to get a little bit more value out of it. And, and the only other way I see that happening is in one pound packages of hamburger. So I'm not set up to, uh, to store that much hamburger meat yet. So hopefully it's in time, I'll develop a system for that. Have you started, are you selling grass fed beef now? I am. I am selling mostly to family and friends right now due to the drought. I, I had to sell most of my steers for a little bit. And I only had four, four last year and five this year, but next year I should have 20 steers that I'll be looking to, uh, to market. And I don't, I won't say every one of them will finish. Some of those go to hamburger. They make high quality hamburger meat if it's. Yeah. You know, I was planning on finishing grass, finishing some or growing some out this year, seeing where I was in the process. But I ended up selling them last December because we got short on grass here and it was dry. I ended up marketing them and I could have made money holding them to March and marketing them. But I didn't have the grass or the hay to get them there. So, you know, all these factors contribute. That was one thing I had last year is I had plenty of pay. I I keep three years of pay, three years worth of pay on hand at all times, which I guess being the guy that bails his own hay. I can do that, but I've made that a point after the 2011 drought and then following into some smaller droughts we had had through the years, I never let myself get, go into a winter with less than at least a hundred to 150 bales of grass hay on hand. And it didn't have to be good quality, but if it would rough a cow through the winter, then it was better than nothing. Well, I know. Yeah. I didn't like selling $150 $150 hay to other people. And I didn't want to take a, take a hit on it. My math showed that if I kept all my cows and all my steers until the green grass came, and that is praying and assuming that the grass is going to come in the spring at some point or summer that the drought was going to break. Cause I, I fed down to the last, I think I had 50 bales of hay left when it started raining. I think I started with over 500. I made the decision that if I fed through the year, I would make more on the cows than I would sell them the hay. Oh, yeah. And that's just something I had to pencil out. Well, Tanner, it is time for our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. 
Our very first question, what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? I started with a Greg Judy video and a Working Cows podcast. I just went to the very first videos they ever put video or podcast I ever saw and just started there. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of podcasts that are great. There's a lot of YouTubers that, I mean, that they're doing a great job. I mean, it's, I won't say every one of them, they probably got it, got it right for their area. I don't know, but you can learn a lot of stuff from everyone and just take what you need and apply it to your own operation. So I'm not much of a reader, so it's, it's always listening to podcasts or watching a YouTube video before I go to bed or something. I am a, a reader, but boy, I love my podcast. I love Saturday morning when I get up, I got to catch sun up, but then I usually, I get caught up on my YouTube videos. So I kind of get started a little bit later on Saturday morning, just cause I'm doing that. But I, I look forward to that time and I, and I'm invested in those farms that I watch on YouTube that, you know, I'm like, what are they doing now? I like watching those will it run videos on pickups. I'm fascinated by that. And that's something I want to add to my own YouTube channel eventually. I don't know how that'll work with the algorithm, but I, I just, I really enjoy it. I get a kick out of those. My theory on content creation, create something you'd want to watch or listen to. There's going to be some other people out there that, that feel the same way as you. Oh, exactly. Our second question, Tanner, what is your favorite tool to use on the farm? I'm going to say my family. It's great going out there with my wife and kids. And, you know, I got my, my post carriers, each kid carrying the posts. I mean, it's, that, that, that's the one thing that keeps the operation going. I debate from time to time about getting a four wheeler or a side by side. I look at prices of things and I decide I'm getting a four wheeler. But then I remember, I love it when my wife goes out and she doesn't have to do anything but ride in it. And I'll do everything, but I just love her company going out there. So it really, once I stop and think about it, I'm getting a side-by-side. -side. I just haven't done it yet. Yeah, we, we've got a, a Ranger crew, so we can get all four of us and a couple dogs in the Ranger. Um, and that that's how we go out and take care of cattle. Good family time. So, and the kids get to learn something. And, but I mean, I, I, I could do it without the Ranger. I, I mean, it'd be a whole lot more walking. I have an old four wheeler. I could do it without that. One thing I don't think I could do it without is family. So, yeah. Yeah. Very good answer, Tanner. That, that should earn you some points too. I'm brown nosing real hard now. Our third question, Tanner, what would you tell someone just getting started? Don't buy more than you can afford. Start small and build up. I learned that the hard way multiple times. And at some point I just had to sell, get rid of a whole bunch of things and pretty well start over because I hadn't built my operation correctly from on the haying side. I bought a nice tractor in Baylor, which the tractor could, you know, pull a drill, everything like that. So I justified that, but I could have got by with about half the swather I bought and I could have got by with about half the rake I bought. And you know, buy affordable cattle. I mean, don't just spend all your money on that. Save some money to build your fences. Save some money to put in water infrastructure. Save some money to live on. I mean, you can get yourself in a hole real quick. Excellent advice, Tanner. And lastly, Tanner, where can others find out more about you? A YouTube channel, STK Cattle and Hay. 
I, I try to post weekly. Sometimes it happens three times a week and sometimes I skip a week. So I haven't gotten real consistent there, but I also have an email address if anyone wants to email me, but I give me a second and I'll remember the email address. SDK underscore cattle at yahoo.com. So if anyone would like, wants to reach out, ask anything, just talk. I don't care. I sit in a tractor for 10 to 12 hours a day usually. So if you can handle listening to a Baylor beef in the background, I'll talk to you. Well, Tanner, thank you for coming on and sharing with us today. Really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate it. You have a blessed day. You too, Tanner. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer in their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. Thank you for listening. If you found something useful, Please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest link. We are looking for guests for this year. So if you're interested, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support the show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is through our Patreon. If you'll go over to grazinggrass.com and click on support, you'll see our links there. And that lists some ways you can support it. But you can click on the Patreon link, and for a small amount a month, you help support this podcast so we're able to put out more episodes, and we appreciate that. Also, there is a second level there. If you're a beginning farmer or just getting started and you're wanting more assistance, there is a Start Grazing Grass level there that you could subscribe to and gain more information. No matter what you choose to do, we appreciate you listening. Keep on grazing grass.